I invite you this morning to Exodus, the fifth chapter, where we will read two verses and go ahead and warn you there is a question there that we're going to look at. And then we're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, where we believe the answer to that question lies in a very concise and brief way. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice, to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And then to Acts, the 17th chapter, what is commonly known as Paul's discourse at Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. And we'll look at, begin reading at verse 22. And kind of think of this as we read through it. We have just encountered a question, and suppose that this followed in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 5 for the answer. But of course, it is many years, many generations later, and the Apostle Paul, I believe, is giving the answer. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto any gold, or silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Our sermon title is the question Pharaoh asked in the original text there in Exodus 5 and 2. Who is the Lord or who is God? And then he followed up that I should obey him or obey his voice or commandments. If you pause just for a little while and consider that question, I think we would all agree Pharaoh is not the first person who ever asked that question, but that indeed it is a universal question that has been asked either in word or in mind or in heart by all kinds of peoples, perhaps every human being to some degree throughout all of the history of mankind. It is still asked today, and it will be 
There will people being asking will be asking or engaged in asking this question when the end comes. And obviously the fact that the question is asked relates to us that there is a problem, does it not? That problem happened in Genesis 3 with the fall. Man's perception and consciousness of God was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And so we all inherited a corrupt view, a perverted view of God if we even believed in God, which many do not. But the point to be made, it is the great universal question and perhaps the question of all questions. Who is God that I should obey Him? The Bible tells us in Psalms 14, 1 and 53, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Some people answer that way. No need to ask the question because God is non-existent. And then to those that believe there is a God or God's plural or some form of God, then we have myriads of answers and all of them but one are the wrong answers about who God is. And to have the wrong answer, I remind you, to this question is to perish. If this question is not answered truthfully and properly, then that person's belief about God and their soul will perish. If you have not the truth to this question, then you have not the hope of eternal life. And it's a very simple thing that to believe in God, you must believe in the existence of God and it must be the right God. Men have always been intrigued with the plurality of gods. I guess that's part of the fall is more is better. But obviously the Bible reveals God to be one singular eternal God and existing of course in three persons. Well, I'm going to lay a little something on you here. When this question is asked, it is you and I's responsibility as believers to be able to answer this question. In other words, if somebody asks us, who is God? How do I know who God is or where God is? Or, you know, there's hundreds of denominations and all of them are proclaiming a God. Is it the same God or what? We have the responsibility to answer that. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready, you know, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to those that ask and inquire, and I'm paraphrasing, but do it with meekness and fear. So we have that responsibility. And this doesn't mean you have to be a scholar or a theologian. It just means you have to be saved, born again, and you've got some knowledge of God that you can relate to people. And it is important to be able to do that because, again, we want people to believe in the God, not in a God. The devil loves for people to believe in a God just as long as their God is not the God. Like in Sunday school this morning, then he's got them. And this ecumenical idea that all gods are really the same God, that's one of the biggest lies that ever come out of the devil's mouth, when again the Bible is very clear and very singular about God. One 
true, eternal being. The rest are fakes and frauds. I will say, as manifest here by Pharaoh, there is, of course, a natural ignorance of God. Again, part of the fall. And all civilizations of mankind and generations and ethnic groups have manifested that. And sadly, many times with that ignorance, which we can sympathize with, there is defiance. You can see that in what Pharaoh said, can't you? He didn't didn't ask because he really wanted to know. He had his gods. They were Egyptian gods. And so he questions in a very defiant way because Moses referred to him as the god of the Hebrews or the Israelites, the children of Israel. Well, who is your God that I should obey him? This is like two little kids saying, my dad's bigger than your dad, or my dad knows more than your dad. You know, it's got a defiant ring to it. And unfortunately, that is part of the sinner's makeup. That sinners also are naturally, of course, defiant about God, got attitude about God, even though they don't know him. And as we said in Sunday school this morning, of course, the devil loves to give everybody his scoop of God and not the truth of God's Word. Well, it's important that we know who God is, and the more we know of God, the better off we are. Because as somebody has said and stated many, many years ago, I don't know when, where, or where it came from, but it's certainly true. Your worship, adoration, or relationship with God, and I insert some of those things, none of that can be any greater than your concept of God. And your concept of God not being what you think, but I would emphasize your knowledge of the true and living God. If you got a little God, you got a little religion, you got a little hope, you got a little comfort, you got a little assurance, you got a little everything, because your God's little. But when you see God in all his glory, greatness, sovereignty, and majesty, you got something then. Then you got some potential. So again, think about it. Your worship of God is no greater than your concept or knowledge of God. And that's why we we meet here is to continually learn about God. And when we've learned all the days of our life, we'll only have learned a little bit about God. But isn't your life been enhanced as you grew in the knowledge of God? And find out who he really is, not who you thought he was, what he really does, not what you thought he might be trying to do, etc., etc., Well, this is what sinners need to know. They have no concept of who God is, of his greatness, either in mercy to save them or his greatness in judgment to judge them. And that is our duty to tell them. So I want to make this very simple. I want to try to answer Pharaoh's question by Paul's narrative at Mars Hill. Of course, too much information there to cover, to go through that in any Uh, expository way but we want to do it in three general ways who is God well we answer that question by God himself as Paul stated because the one and true and only God has been pleased to reveal himself now I want to emphasize that point if God were not pleased to reveal himself then none of us would ever know anything about God But God has revealed himself. 
And he's done it in more than one way. And I've, this is not new to you. You've heard me reference this or talk about this before. And they're all important, some more than others. But God has revealed himself in three ways. And Paul points these out in the narrative that we read. The first one is God has revealed himself in creation. The second is God has revealed himself by and in his word. And the third is God has revealed himself in human flesh in the incarnation, the person of the third person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. That's very foundational and vitally important. First of all, in creation. This means that at the bare minimum, Every human being that's ever lived has lived in God's creation, which is a testimony and the handiwork, evidence, and proof that God is and God exists. It's awesome to think about. Of all the persons that may have lived up to this point, of all the places, conditions, cultures, geography, and everything, that there's no place that anybody has ever been born, lived, and existed where the evidence of God's creative hand was not evident. It's evident on the planet. It's evident it's on the vegetation, the animals, whatever they have around them. It was evident. And if not, if you think that somebody could live somewhere, they could barely sustain life like in the Sahara Desert and live as something out there and not see the handiwork of God, all anybody ever has to do is just look up. And it's on display up there, just like a great big, bigger than ever movie screen, right? I mean, 360 degrees, any way you want to cut it around this planet, you can look up. So God has revealed himself, manifest himself in creation. Paul points this out in the 24th verse. God hath made the world and all things that are therein. Now that, to somebody who is ignorant of God, would be an astounding statement, wouldn't it? Think about it. We take it for granted because you and I probably, most of us, grew up with the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. But think of the myriads or multitudes or generations of people in other generations, cultures, ethnic groups that haven't grown up with it. I mean, the Navajos, Native Americans, different tribes of Indians have different ideas and philosophies about a beginning and where they come from. And I'm not making fun, but whether they believe they came out of a hole in the ground or fell out of the sky or whatever, the Bible gives us the true creation story, doesn't it? And I mention this because they're all so far-fetched. You know, it'd be easy for an evolutionist today to sit and laugh at an Indian that thinks that they came out of a hole in the ground by a coyote and a woman or something, and I don't even remember how the story goes, but, you know, to laugh how ridiculous that is. Well, yes, it is ridiculous. But you've got to realize people don't have the true story. So what are they going to do? They're going to be like the Athenians. They're going to have their own idea of where they come from. Somebody told a story or got a revelation they claim and handed it down, and other people believed it. Well, is that any more absurd or preposterous to believe that it all started with a big bang and we all came from the same piece of slime? I mean, the heathen would laugh at that if somebody told him, wouldn't he? 
So it's all ridiculous. But we have the creation story. And God has revealed himself in creation and it's apparent to all peoples. If you want to flip over to Romans 1, we'll look at it very quickly here. That creation holds all men accountable of who God is. Chapter 1 of Romans verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. And you read the context, this is all human beings. Here it is. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How does anybody sense creation see clearly what was in creation? What did God say in creation? Lack will begin. Lack. The stuff God created that Adam and Eve saw, hear me, is the same stuff we see today. That's what Paul is saying. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, and this knew here doesn't mean know Him in the intimate, great knowledge sense or saving sense, but by the evidence of creation, these things, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And it is so vitally important to understand that what Paul is saying right here is the natural path, the natural course that all peoples naturally take. Let me go back to the Tower of Babel. Not that this was not happening before that. It was. But that's a good point for us to emphasize the point. When God confused their language and they went forth, Okay, when they were all together, they, had, they could communicate with one another and probably had similar ideas and beliefs about God, didn't they? But as they dispersed, this is the natural thing that happened. They all became idolaters, worse than they were at the Tower of Babel. And they adapted and adopted their own beliefs of idolatry. Bottom line is, these verses I read to you, I summarize. The lost sinner, dead in trespasses and sin, whether he's African, whether he's Indian, whether he's white, whatever color he is, wherever he is, and whatever generation he is in, he looks at the evidence of creation and God's handiwork, acknowledges by his conscience that God gave him that there is a higher being, but he immediately begins to worship the things he sees rather than the God who created them. So that's why we're all natural idolaters. It is an unavoidable path for fallen mankind. And human history proves it. Everything that we have history on people proves it. They've all went into some form of idolatry. Which proves two things. The law of God written in their heart. Their conscience of a higher being. If we could ever find somebody that didn't worship something. Then we could say well the Bible's not true. And we can throw it away and quit believing in God. 
But everybody has some form of religion. They have some belief. It is what directs and controls their lives. And left to itself, this is the natural thing. Rather than seeing that and saying, somebody made that. That's who I'm going to worship. They end up bowing down to the lightning, to the volcano, to the snake, to the bullock, to the fish, to the animal, and then make their own replicas of those things and worship them. This is what was going on in Egypt at the time with the bullocks, the fish, the snakes, and all the stuff down there. So verse 21 says, they knew when they knew God or acknowledged that there was God by creation, instead of being thankful and glorifying God as God, their foolish heart darkened, vain in their imagination, and thinking they're smart, they changed that glory of God into images. And so they bow down to nature, to whatever. It's the natural course of mankind. Man can never improve except that. And idolatry just gets worse. Have you ever wondered when you read this, why it gets into homosexuality here? It's the natural course of idolatry. Idolatry of any kind, of any flavor, whatever, if left unchecked, it's eventually going to get there. It's going to get into some form of sexual perversion. This is why there's goddesses and prostitutes and all kinds of everything else. It's not new with the Catholic Church. It's always been in false religion. It's always been in idolatry. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And it all becomes done under a cloak of godliness that is nothing but idolatry. Now think about the Old Testament, just the history we have in the Bible. We read in the Old Testament, the Philistines had gods. The Egyptians had gods. We come to the New Testament, the Athenians have got gods. As I've said, I've read there when Paul's addressing this. Over, If you walked into Athens like Paul did, I am told that you would have seen 200 monuments with names of different gods. At least. Plurality of gods. And then, as we saw there, to make sure they had it all covered, they just in case they missed one, just in case there was something out there they didn't know about, and indeed there was, they had one to the unknown God. And it's quite amazing, is it not? That Paul had 200 plus things he could have talked about, and he chose the one that they needed to know that they didn't know, the unknown God. Shows again the ignorance and the need, the unknown God. So, Paul asserts here in this that God, the true God, the living God, is the God of all creation. Man, according to Romans 1 here, makes his own God. You know, whether it's a fish, the bird, the bullock, the whatever it is, and then makes the thing in his hand. Many of them, and we laugh at it, but it is sad. Think of all of the gods, human form, that have been made and that men bow down to. Statues of all kinds, shapes and figures, right? I mean, all different cultures, how many hundreds, perhaps thousands, there have been. And the Bible scoffs at this. And that's why we have to scoff at it. Not that we don't have sympathy for those who are in it, but at the ridiculousness of it in view of the evidence. Psalms 115 speaks to the fact that the heathen does this, 135 of Psalms says the same thing. 
In fact, uh, I'm going to read that one in one reference that one in 135 because I like the reference there that it says. Uh, I see 135 down at verse 15. Uh, the the idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And then it describes. You know, they have mouths, but nobody's ever heard them speak. They have hands. They've never done anything. And it's literally scoffing at the idea that man would make something that is lifeless, that has all of the things there to communicate and to do, but they've never communicated, never done anything. But the God of the Bible indeed has done just the opposite. He has revealed himself in that, in that regard. Now, I want to dwell a point here quickly on this, and we've got to move on, that again, not only is there ignorance there are no knowledge of that, but the ignorance encompasses ignorant worship. Pharaoh was ignorant. The Athenians were ignorant, right? Therefore, their worship was vain and amounted to nothing. Back there in that 23rd and 24th verse, Paul literally said, and he was very bold, wasn't he? To the unknown God, he says, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Well, ignorant worship comes from an ignorance of God. If we, again, if we don't know who God is, we don't know how God wants to be worshipped. So this is why all kinds of things have been done, are being done, and will be done in worship because the God's faults, the worship's wrong. It's very simple, very clear. Paul said this here, and uh, he also, th- well, think of the words of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus said that to the Samaritan woman, didn't he? He said, you worship, you know not what. In other words, you don't know what you're doing. And it's very sad that as fallen sinners, our concept of God, our worship of God, and everything we're doing toward, quote unquote, the God we believe in is all just just vain. Vanity. Don't amount to nothing. In other words, my last point here is creation is insufficient. There's plenty of evidence there, but man is too blind, too dead in sin to comprehend it to his own benefit and to his own salvation. As Paul said there in Romans chapter 1, rather than seeing the Creator, you see the creature and worship the work of God's hand rather than the God who created it in that respect. And I'm going to use a brief analogy here. Let's suppose every man, like baseball, starts off at home plate. And first plate, first base is creation. Okay? Everybody everywhere that's ever lived that acknowledges God, okay, they made it to first base. But will they make it all the way around and to home, heaven, and eternal life? Well, creation is first base. You need a lot more than that, don't you? A base hit's not a home run. That's good. But that's not sufficient. God, in other words, hear me, God did not ordain that sinners could be saved simply by looking at creation. It takes more than that. Now, I say that because we live in a day-to-day where especially these new age people think that's all you need. I mean, nature is God. Pantheists, you know, God is nature. And I can go out and 
the mountains or the trees or the fall colors or the fish bank or whatever it is in nature and I can communicate with God. No, you can't. You can't. The Bible does not say, and men shall come to God through nature or creation. It says they come through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's skipping ahead. The second point we want to make is God has revealed Himself in His Word. And since I just made the analogy of creation being first base, think of God's Word second base. Let me remind you, not everybody has had access or heard of the Bible, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, either the Old Testament or the New Testament or both. Bottom line, whoever those people were, the Gentiles whom God left in their own darkness, in their own ways, that's mentioned in Acts 14 and 12, He just let the Gentiles go on their own way. You know how far the, those Gentiles got? First base. That's, they went to first base and they perished at first base. That's the fact. If God had wanted to get the Word of God to him, he'd have got it to him. God sends his Word where he wants it to go. That's why Paul went to some places in modern-day Turkey, but the Holy Spirit forbid him to go into Bithynia, even though they wanted to go there. But when we have received or come in contact with the Word of God, that's God's second revelation, then we have that which is God's breathe. We have here now God manifesting Himself in the words of Scripture, telling us history, telling us facts, telling us truth about Himself and ourselves. Paul said there in verse 24, that God that made the world and all things therein, seeing He is Lord of heaven and earth. Heathens can see the God of creation through the creation, but don't worship Him as such. But the Bible tells us how God created it and that God sustains it all. Lord of heaven and earth. You'll never get that in creation. But the Bible tells us that. It tells us God made it. it. tells us how God made a lot of it. And that God upholds it all by the word of His power. And that he has the ability to work all things after the counsel of his own will. So we need the word of God. And that's why we believe every human being needs the word of God. And why Christ commissioned his church to take the word of God. Because without the word of God, people perish. That's it. The word of God is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. And Paul makes mention of this and emphasizes this when he says there in verse 24, God that made heaven and earth, or God that made the world all things therein, and God that made is the Lord or administrator, upholder, sovereign over heaven and earth, controls all things. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Now this is the common thing and always has been the common thing and the proof of what I've said to you about idolatry is that man not only creates his own God by his own hands, but he creates the dwelling place for his own God. And it's a temple, isn't it? A man-made temple. Think of that. Man wants his God, and he wants God, his God, in his house. Give him a location, give him an address, give him whatever. Why? Why does an idolater do that? Why does he want to do that. Why do all idolaters in all generations and even at the current time do that? It's very simple. 
The idolater is worshiping with the five senses. He needs something he can see, touch, taste, or feel, and most importantly, have access to. It's all about accessibility. If I can go to Fifth and Main, to the house of God where God is, you know, and see God, meet God, pray to God, or do whatever with God there, I mean, that's real to my senses, isn't it? A real place, a real person, a real act, blah, 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 blah. No faith in that at all. I mean, it's faith of the five senses. But this is why. This is why man makes idols, man makes images, and man makes temples. It's a place to go. It's all about accessibility. I get frustrated as well as burdened when I you know, hear people emphasize about going Stop going down to the church to pray or what have you. What a waste of time. What a waste of time to go anywhere to pray. You know, again, that comes from man. That doesn't come from the Bible. Where'd Jesus say go? He didn't say go to church. He said go in the closet. That wasn't a church closet. You know, I mean, you just see how man gets it all wrong. When God reveals who He is, what He wants done, and how He wants done. So again, the importance of the Word of God. Man will never get it right. He needs the Word of God to even know God. And to put faith in God, rather than having God in a box in some elaborate temple somewhere. But this is why there's ruins all over the world, isn't there? of places of worship. Right down here, down the road here, we got some of them. Aztec ruins, Chaco Canyon, all of this stuff around here. There were in those places, and again, it's just speculation. Biggest part of that was probably worship-oriented because everybody is, their lives are controlled by what they believe about a deity. They may lie to us today, but we know what the tendency of idolatry is. And wherever you go, South America, Africa, wherever, Asia, these places, pictures, statues, ruins, temples, you know. Sad, isn't it? They needed the Word of God. Why, why would they need the Word of God? John eight thirty two. The truth will set you free. What Paul said at Mars Hill was liberating to the Athenians if they believed it. What Paul said in Ephesus was liberating to the worshipers of Diana if they believed it. What Elijah and others said to the Baal worshipers was liberating if they would believe it, you see. To know God is to be liberated from idolatry. And those who have not the word of God stay on first base in the trenches of idolatry and perish, but the word of God is able to liberate someone from that. Here Paul tells us God's not in that temple and he's not worshipped with men's hands. It's not right ceremonies and things you do. What, what do you do with your hands? What did God give us hands? Some people think he'd give us hands to feed our faces, I think, but God give us hands to work, I believe, don't you? That's what he told Adam to do when he went out of the garden. Again, and it says, neither is worship with men's hands. You do things with your hands. And you can do things with your hands in worship. You can do sacrifices and things. He says, that's not it. God don't need that. 
God has given life to everything that's alive. God hath made of one blood all nations to dwell on the earth. He's also determined when they're going to live, the duration of their time, the bounds of their habitation, etc., etc. He just made it very clear there of mankind's creation, his providential purpose, and what God does. You won't find that in another book. It's in this book. It's in this book. People don't know where they come from. They don't know what they're here for. They don't know where they're going. It's all a messed up mess in idolatry. But the word of God makes the muddy water clear. Tells us exactly where we come from. Why we're here. What to do. And how it's all going to wrap up. People need the word of God. And without the word of God. Verse 27 describes all that man can do in his idolatry. Now, based on what verse 26, the facts is, which again, I, I just, you know, we just hear so much about racism and prejudice and all and, and all this, and it, there's one verse you need to know about racism and prejudice, and this is verse 26. That's verse 26. If every human being believed that, we would be rid of racism and prejudice. But everybody doesn't believe it. They're not going to believe it. And the future generations won't believe it. So racism and prejudice is always going to be here. But the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Where did we all come from? From one man and one woman. It don't matter who we are, what we believe, what we look like now. We all came from the same source. And if we could drop all the divisions of ethnicity and recognize that everybody's either in Adam or in Christ, we'd all be so much better off. That's all we need to know. We're sinners in Adam. We're believers in Christ. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after Him and find Him though He be not far from every one of us. Man naturally with a conscience again recognizes there is a higher being. God has instilled that in it. That's the law of God written on the heart. But man in trying to find that God apart from the Word of God with only the creation to go on is verse 27 which literally means someone like is blind. Can't see and you grope around and you feel. You know, you know, we're not blind but if you've ever closed your eyes done that or didn't have a light on even though you know there's stuff in the room you're groping around, right? That is the description. Of the sinner, without God, without God's word, and without believing what the word of God says. Most people involved in religion are blind people groping around in the dark. Feeling but never finding. And this does not in any way contradict, I must say, the scripture in Romans which says there's none seeking after God. That means seeking after the God as revealed in the Bible in the way God says to come to him. Man seeks his own way with his own knowledge of who he thinks God is. That's groping around in the dark. It's very sad. But I'm not describing something of people of past centuries. I'm describing you and I. When you were lost, you were groping around too. You had your conception of God, you had your conception of the Bible, you had your conception of hell, you had your conception of heaven, you had your conception of yourself, you had your conception of others, and what did we end, find, end up finding out about all of that? Check off every box. Wrong, 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 and wrong. All wrong, 
all backwards, all upside down, not like we thought it was in a nice little neat package. No, vitally wrong. And how did you come to that knowledge? The Word of God. By the Spirit of God. So the Word of God is absolutely necessary because it is the Word of God that gives us the only hope that there is. And Paul talked about that in verses 30 through 31 here. All of this, what does he say? The times of this ignorant God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Where, where do we get that message? We get it from God's Word. Because He's appointed a day which He will judge the world and righteous by that man. And that man is God's Son who came to earth incarnate, was born of a virgin, and died and rose again. And when Paul mentioned the resurrection, that ended the discourse. But the Word of God... The gospel that is in the Word of God not only gives us the sinner's dilemma and our idolatrous background and our hopelessness, but it points us to and prophesies of and gives us the remedy. So by having the Word of God, you can get to second base. But that doesn't mean you're going to get home. But you have the remedy, which is God in human flesh. And that's the third revelation, is it not? We call it the incarnation. God took a body. Jesus took a body. He was the eternal Son of God, but He was manifest in human flesh just like you and I. Born of a virgin, no earthly father. Isaiah 7, 14 said his name would be Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 23 says his name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, think about it, so simple, literally means God with us. Now that doesn't mean that's the first time God was ever with his people. I mean, think back in the Egyptian scenario there with Pharaoh. God manifested himself there, didn't he, through plagues. But God was with his people how? In the pillar of the cloud and the pillar by fire, right? Neither one of those are flesh. But in the New Testament, through the virgin birth, God became, as Isaiah said, a man. Emmanuel. God with us. Think about that. I mean, this is so special. We always say that, this, that... The life of Christ, and particularly the death of Christ on the cross, is the apex of all human history. Indeed it is. But we can literally say, of all humanity, how many years we can take a slice of time of about 33 years and say, here's where God was with us. In human flesh. 33 years. Amazing, isn't it? Incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, I've got time, I think. I'll try not to keep you. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. But let's listen to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 as he beautifully describes this, which he mentioned, of course, in the Gospel of John, about this revelation of God in human form in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1 and 1, that which was from the beginning. <laughs> he started the Gospel of John the same way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Which, notice this now, here it is. The incarnate, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Let me pause and say, think of all the idolaters that looked upon them little statues. The mouth never uttered one word. The ear never opened to hear one of their prayers. The hand was never lifted to do anything for them. The eye never blinked. But John said, we have looked upon, we have handled, we have heard he which was from the beginning. Think about that. Wow. For the life was manifested and we have seen it. Again, I cannot help but make the comment and be redundant here again. How many idolaters have and do today? I think of that little Buddha statue. Has ever anybody ever heard that little statue say one thing? Utter one word. Grunt. Make any kind of noise. You know, I'm not being funny, but it, that you, you get the gist of what I'm saying. You can look all you want. You can, it don't move. Got feet, but never went anywhere. You have to pick it up and move it. I mean, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is, sadly, and I say this grievously, when you read that in Psalms 14 and Psalms uh, 35, it said, they that worship make them are like unto them. Now, that's the kicker that's a killer. Wow. We don't say that to make fun, folks. It's one of the most hardest things to think of that everybody who has one of them statues is as dead in their heart as that statue is. If it's made out of stone, that's, that's the fact they're embracing that statue shows the state of their own heart. They that trust them are likened to them. It's dead, they're dead. John says the life was manifested. We saw it. We saw him. God with us in human flesh and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father. That's the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. And was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be filled. Can you imagine them going out? After Christ ascended based on this. That's what they declared. We're not telling you somebody about somebody back in Elijah's day. We've seen him. We heard him. We walked with him. We sat at the table and ate with him. We traveled with him. The reality of God in human flesh. Wow. Wow. May have been seen in the pillar and the cloud in the Old Testament, but he was seen in human flesh in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, he came, as, as Paul said there in our closing verses that we read. He came as a lamb without spot. He came into the world to die for sinners. That all who believe in him could have the gift of eternal life. So let's round the bases in closing, shall we? First base. Creation, God manifests Himself. Takes more than that. God has been so gracious in revealing Himself in this book we know of as the Bible, the holy inspired Word of God. That gets us to second base, halfway home, doesn't it? But only by believing what's in this Word will be left like a base runner on second base. How many people have had access, believed, read the Word of God, and died in their sins? A bunch. A bunch. How many are? 
How many have a Bible? Just think today. How many people are sitting in church and they got a Bible and it's got their name on it right here, but their name is not in the book up there? I fear to think of that. And yet by believing the person that's portrayed and proclaimed in this book from Genesis to Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's revelation is on third base. I'm not saying that to be cute. It's just an analogy. But God's Word is what takes us and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ because here is the Gospel and Christ is the object of that Gospel, right? And the bottom line is, as I close this analogy, which may seem ridiculous, and I may think it is probably too afterwards, but nevertheless, I mean it, so I'll stay with it. None of us hit home runs. Triples is all the best you can do. Because if we believe in Christ, we're on third base. And in Christ, it's He that's going to take us home, right? We're not taking ourselves there. He literally says, I'll come again and take you where I am. And what does the Bible say? No man cometh to the Father except by and through the Son. So it's all of grace. All of grace. If we know who God is, we know Him through Jesus Christ or we're not saved because the message of God's Word is about His Son, Jesus Christ. And without faith in God's revelation of His Savior, His Lamb, then everybody either perishes on first base in idolatry or second base with perhaps a wide open Bible before their eyes, but their heart uncircumcised, their eyes blinded, and their ears deaf. What do we say to these things? To God be the glory, and to sinners we say, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.